Welcome to Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us this week for Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, with Pastor John King. We start out with this uh, personal audit, if you will, the life's ledger sheet I put in that little subtitle. Now, I don't know who here, in your, if you're married, uh, who handles your finances, but I, uh, if you're like me, you probably recognize the importance of maintaining your balance sheet, you know, your checkbook, um, keeping your books straight, recording all of your account transactions, because you know that neglecting that can lead to some embarrassing situations and can get a little expensive too if you overdraw your accounts. Likewise, we should also recognize the importance of taking a hard look at your spiritual checkbook. So consider what Paul is doing is sort of like a spiritual um, audit of his life and, and how you can apply it to yourself. And he says, first of all, he starts out with this sort of statement of profit and loss in a spiritual sense. He says, but what things were gained to me? And we read it last week, his accomplishment. You know, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was a Pharisee. You know, he kept all the law. He persecuted the church. He was zealous for God, so he thought. And so he had all these religious credentials that most people could never measure up to. He was, he was very precise and very dedicated. And at the time, they were gained to him. You know, he was known as a religious man. Now that word gain, you might see it in a different translations. You could call it assets. So these are his assets, his religiosity, his strict obedience to the law. And notice he says, though, uh, these, these things that are formerly gained to me, I have counted as loss for Christ. So he's taken that debit column and that credit column and he switched them. Okay, so all that stuff that he had, he counted as lost. He says, it says in the New Living Translation, now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. It kind of, you know, really expounds on that, on the word. So loss are now damage or liabilities. So he's, he's turned everything around. Uh, one writer put it this way, everything that was on the credit side and nothing on the debit side. However, in a flash, he struck off everything in the credit column. I don't know where you put yours on your ledger sheet. I'm, I'm thinking of my ledger where we keep our checkbook. And he struck off everything in the credit column and inserted it in the debit column. And then Christ alone now stands in the credit column. The apostle's language is explicit because gain is in the plural and loss is in the singular. One by one, the apostle had carefully added up the individual items of merit as he looked to the judgment. See, these were the real pluses. But in a blinding moment, they came to one great singular loss. Jesus Christ had become Paul's only credit. And that's important for us to remember. But he, he kind of goes into verse 8. He lays out the important details of this reevaluation, this spiritual audit. He says, yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. All things and everything, everything is a disadvantage compared to knowing Jesus. And it's a way of thinking that, you know, happens to us when we come to the Lord, when we come to know his goodness, when we truly know him. But sometimes we forget that. And we put other things in front of him. 
And then we run into sort of a distance. We feel distant from God because we haven't put him in his right place in our hearts. And it says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. So Paul is thinking of his personal testimony when he was on the road to Damascus and how his life was before. You see, Paul is now redefining the things that he previously thought were a credit to his moral standing, which are actually loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Paul, if you look uh, historically, scholars point out that Paul was a citizen of Tarsus. And at the time that he lived here, only families of wealth and reputation were allowed to retain their citizenship. And he, he was really born into a, a home of wealth and culture. You know, he was, he was well-educated. His family, they were wealthy Jews living in the most progressive of the oriental cities of the day. And in, in, a, in a moment, when he gave his life to the Lord, he went from being a wealthy man in the eyes of the world, not only in the spiritual sense and the religious sense, but to a, a poor itinerant missionary. And you guys know the story of Paul. I mean, he, how many times was he shipwrecked? How many times was he beaten? How many times was he flogged? How many times, you know, he's bit by a snake, a poisonous snake. All that stuff that happened. And he's been in prison writing this letter. Now he's been under house arrest. He's been under lock and key for the last four years. And he's still writing this letter. He traded all of that. In fact, he says, he goes on to use the strongest language he can use. He says, I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All that prior stuff. Now, King James Version, he says, I do count them but dung. That Greek word is skubalon, and that's any refuse. It's, it basically, he considers all of that worth less than manure. And that's Paul. He wanted to use the strongest possible word to describe you know, his disdain for all the religious elements that kept him from knowing Christ. You see, you can have nothing before Jesus. No good works. No accomplishments. Your thing. Your confidence in your flesh. You cannot do that before the Lord. And he said it that I may gain Christ in verse 9. And guess what? Be found in Him. He wanted to be found in Him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law. Now Paul, remember, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And at the end of the day, whether he died or Jesus returned... He desired to be found in Him. And that should be your heart's desire. No matter what your struggle you're going through right now, your desire at the end of the day should be that you're found in Him. Because you don't know if you're going to wake up. I know it's kind of morbid. It's raining out. It's uh, kind of a washout. But it's reality, right? It's reality. He says, not having my own righteousness, my human effort. See, as a Jew, Paul's confidence in the flesh was, as we said, he, would, he had to rely on the law for righteousness. And we do the same thing. We have our crutches, if you will. Whether it's accomplishment, or our bank accounts, or our knowledge. But he says, I, I desire to be found in him. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ, or the faithfulness of Christ, now what he's talking about is the work that Jesus did. Because don't think that it's the work that gets you there. Just because you have a passion for the Lord and you desire for Him to be everything in your life, you don't do it in your own strength. And you wouldn't even have that, uh, that righteousness in Christ if it hadn't been for Christ's faithfulness to begin with. 
He says, by the righteousness which is from God by faith. NIV says the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. It's important that we keep things in a right understanding. And this verse, uh, we're going to talk a little doctrine here because doctrine's important, knowing why you believe what you believe. This verse describes the doctrine, and you may have heard it, of imputation. Imputation, which means simply to credit something into a person's account. When you are saved, there is a divine transaction taking place. Jesus takes your sin and guilt and you receive his righteousness and resurrection into eternal life. I'll say it again. Jesus receives your, he takes your sin and guilt and you receive his righteousness and resurrection into eternal life. Amen. Amen. So Paul's testimony reveals how his faith in Christ caused him to open the ledger sheet of his life. You ever trace your steps with the Lord? You ever sit down and kind of add things up and, and compare your life to what the Word of God is telling you and say, you know what, Lord, I, I need to get back on track. We need to balance some things here. I need, to for, I need to ask your forgiveness for sins or whatever I've done, whatever course of action I've been endeavoring on that was not in your will. Because you see that it's worthless. And Paul saw that it was worthless in comparison. Now look, achievements aren't worthless in a worldly sense, and they're not all bad. But when you compare them to Jesus Christ, and knowing Christ, not knowing about Christ, knowing Christ, it has no worth. So what about you and I? What about those of you maybe hearing my voice? Have you taken the time to open the ledger of your life and see how it adds up? Or are you still trying, you know, you're still clawing for life, through life. You're still trying to notch those achievements on your life to claim eternal value in your works. And they won't, it won't work out for you. It's fruitless. And that's why when we come to Christ, it's like a big heavy weight has been lifted off our shoulders. Not only our sins, but our need to please people and our need to try to make myself right in the eyes of society. Carson wrote this. He says, he's speaking to us as a contemporary church. He says, most who read these pages, I suspect, will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and the ancient rites of race and religious heritage. But we may be tempted to brag about still less important things, our wealth, our status, our education, or our emotional stability, our families, our political or business successes, how about our denominational alignments? Or even which version of the Bible that we use? Be careful of people like that. Now this is important. I think what he's saying is important here. He says, be careful of people like that. They tend to regard everyone who is outside their little group as somehow inferior. Somewhere along the way, they inadvertently or even intentionally and maliciously they imagine that faith in Christ Jesus and delight in Him is a little less important than their personal accomplishments. We need to be watching out for that. In fact, he says, look around for those whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ, whose constant boast is Jesus Christ, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. 
Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast it is in Christ Jesus and nothing else. And I tend to agree with him. That's why it's so important to be a part of the prayer groups. You know, ladies, when you get together, I know there's some powerful things going on because your life has been placed in Christ. Your constant hope is in Jesus, and that's, that's contagious. And the same thing with the guys that come every other Tuesday night. You know, we come to confess in a way. You know, we, we talk about a lot of things, but we want to surround ourselves with those whose constant thoughts are with Christ and not the things of this world, as important as they can be. We have to be able to put them in perspective. Tommy Heigl wrote this. He said, when you became a Christian, or when you become a Christian, here's what happens. You exchange your sin for Christ's righteousness. We said that already. You exchange your guilt for a clear conscience. Amen. And a meaningless life for a life with purpose and significance. Last but not least, an eternity in hell for eternity in heaven. That's what you're trading when you put Christ as number one. And so now Paul, having described his reevaluation of his life ledger and this new relationship that he has in verses 10 through 11, noticing that he said what was once gained to him, that was religion, ritual, or confidence in the flesh, is now counted as loss. Now he explains what he gained in the process. It's one thing to say what I've put aside, but what about what I've gained? And it starts with the words uh, that he's kind of expounding here in, in verses 10 and 11, what he said earlier in verse 18. That what we gain is the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, that's what he's trading, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. And he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Word, Greek word, you've heard it, gnosko. That means to become acquainted with in a personal way. It's not simply knowing about Jesus. You know, reading about him even in your Bible or hearing about him in Sunday school or hearing about him at church. It's not knowing about him. It's knowing him personally. You can know about the President of the United States, but you don't know him. You can know about all the famous people. You can know a great deal about their lives, but you don't really know them. And so Paul is saying, I want to know him. This is what, I, this is what I've traded for, that I know him and the power of his resurrection. 1 John 2, 3, it says, now by this, this is how we know that we know him. 1 John 2, 3, now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. A simple line. We know that we know him if we keep his commandments. In other words, obedience is the result of getting to know Jesus personally. And notice he says, in the power of his resurrection. Anastasis, that's the, the same power, consider the power of Jesus, the same power that raised Christ from the grave to give us new life. That's supernatural, only from God kind of power. And the same power also enables us to know him and become more like him. Hughes wrote this. He said, looking back to Jesus uh, in the grave, in the tomb, it says, 2,000 years ago on the first day of the week, 
Christ's cold body lay on a chilled stone in the arms of death. His heart was stilled in the icy grip of the grave. Whatever blood remained was congealed in his veins. His eyes were fixed and dilated. His body was bound tightly with spices and grave clothes. Then before dawn, his vacant eyes blinked open and coarse with light, focused in glittering life. And with the ease of omnipotence, his body left the wrappings like an empty cocoon. And so he says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. He also says, know him and the fellowship of his sufferings. The koinonia of Jesus' suffering. You know, we're having fellowship today. We're having food and fellowship. I hope you don't consider it as a suffering. But that's the desire of somebody who knows Jesus. The fellowship of his suffering. And we all know that as believers, we share to one degree or another the suffering of Jesus. What is it? It's rejection. It's ridicule by those who do not know Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that when you, when you take a stand for the gospel, despite your fears, you sense a deeper relationship with the Lord? And I don't need to lecture anybody in here who's going through health issues and suffering because of health issues. I don't need to tell you what it's like other than to say that you share in that with Him. And you draw closer to him. You're oftentimes closer to the Lord in these, in these very difficult times in your life than any other time in your life. Amen. And you share in the sufferings because you have the promise. So you share in the power of his resurrection. You have the fellowship of his sufferings. And no, notice this, you're also being conformed to his death. And really what that means is simply becoming like him in his death as we die to our old nature and our selfish desires. Somebody's always asking you to do something. Somebody's always wanting to, you know, take some of your time that you think you own. And you have to die. You have to lay it down and give it away. And so you die to yourself just as Christ died for us and laid his life down. And then in verse 11, he continues. This is a very passionate, personal statement by Paul. He says, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whether he dies before Jesus' return or remains alive and experiences the rapture of the church. There's a saying that we, you know, we've heard, maybe started in the Jesus movement. We said, here, there, or in the air. When we say goodbye to somebody, we're either going to be here next Sunday or the next time we gather or we're going to see you in heaven or we're going to see you in the air at the rapture of the church. Yeah. Always looking up. He says that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, this isn't his work. This is his resurrection. It's ex Anastasius. It means from among the dead. From among those who do not believe in Christ. Is what he's saying. Out from among them. Look folks, I cannot avoid the question. Here, I know most of you and some of you I know very well. But do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or do you simply know about him? 
read the stories, hear the messages, sit in a Sunday school class. Do you really know Jesus and the power of his resurrection in your life? That's for you to answer to God, not to me. And if obedience is the result of truly knowing him, do you endeavor to live your life as pleasing to him? Is that your desire? Do you have a desire in your heart to grow in the knowledge of him? And what does that mean? Is today the first day you open the Bible and you won't open it again until next Sunday if you come to church? Or do you desire to know the power of his resurrection in your life? Remember, you were once spiritually dead and ice cold to the things of God. In Ephesians 2, 1, verses 3, 1 through 3, he, we were reminded of it. It says, and you, he made alive before you were a Christian. He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world. And according to the prince of the power of the air, the, the enemy, the devil, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we, un, we once conducted ourselves. We all came from the same place, okay? Paul wasn't born, born again. We conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But praise God for his mercy, in verses 4 through 6 of Ephesians 2, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The fellowship of suffering. You know, we're not just granted the permission to believe in Jesus Christ, wrote one historian. We are also permitted to walk in his sufferings. First John 2.28 Jesus said, And now, little children, abide in him, and when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him and his coming. John wrote that. As we get to the final section for today, remember last week I said, finally, and you know, we realize that's sometimes not the truth when a pastor says that. We've got a little bit more to go. He's pressing forward toward the goal. He's letting go of the past. This is, this is my life verse. This is many of yours life verse, especially if you have a past that you're not particularly proud of. But letting go of the past. And it's at this point, remember, when you go to let go and you're pressing now forward through to the Lord, it's at this point that the enemy will start to whisper in your ear. He'll bring up the fact that you haven't lived up to those virtues that you're talking about. And we've all heard it many times, our past failures and present struggles, the enemy would be quick to say, you call yourself a Christian? The way you used to live? Or that burst of anger that you just expressed to your spouse? You know, as you stumble through life sometimes? You call yourself a Christian? When somebody says that, they're actually representing Satan when they say that. 
That's a, that's a tough one. Be careful when you say that to somebody. Sometimes you get frustrated. Because he wants to tell you that. But notice what Paul says. He says, Not that I have already attained. So amen. He doesn't sit there in this high holy place like he's arrived. Or am already perfected. He hasn't arrived at his goal, but his goal is to be that. Is to continue to grow in Christ. That's sanctification. His passion. Our passion should be to know Christ fully. But also it needs to be matched by our own humility and realize where we're at. You have the prosperity preachers out there. You guys are well aware of them, I'm sure. And they want to tell you something that's totally, totally wrong. Uh, a quote from a known TV preacher, his name is Kenneth Copeland. He said, uh, he preaches freedom from sickness and poverty. Total freedom. You won't have any of that. And he proclaims, he said this, quote, The world's shortages have no effect on someone who has already gone to heaven. Therefore, they should have no effect on us here who have made Jesus the Lord of our lives. That's a false teaching. We're going to go through tough, tough times. If the Apostle Paul would declare the fact that he has not arrived, and even at the very end of his life say that he was chief of sinners, who is this man to make those claims and to tell people those, those lies? But notice he says, I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ has already laid hold of me. Press on means I follow after. It's a figure of speech. It's though you're running a race swiftly to achieve your goal. So the reason is, is that I may lay hold or take possession of. And this is in a good sense of Jesus by his holy power and influence. Laying hold of our mind and our will in order to prompt us and govern. It's the thing that motivates us and moves forward in our faith. And so he says in verse 13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. One thing I do is I forget about those things which were behind and reach forward to those things which were ahead. You see, that's a, a great memory verse. <laughs> that's a great memory verse. Paul has not arrived, and he doesn't for a moment consider himself to be a perfect Christian. But he's also not satisfied with the status quo. You know, that's another check for your heart for the Lord and your passion for Christ is when you, if you can sit there and say, no, I'm good where I'm at. I don't need to grow in the Lord. I'm, I'm fine. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've reached the point I need to reach. I'm serving. I'm, doing, I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to prayer group. I have devotions. I don't need to grow anymore. That's an unhealthy place to be. And I don't think anybody for a moment wants to be there. But he says, forgetting those things which were behind and reaching forward. In other words, neglecting, no longer caring for it. It's so important. In other words, stop wasting time, John, regretting the past. Let go of your guilt, your past hurts, your grudges. You can't change the past. You cannot change the past. But with God's help, you can change the future. Yep. Holding on to the past can prevent us from being what God wants us to be. Jesus would say this 
Luke 9.62, he says, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You, you can't do your Christian walk. You know, you're running in this direction and you're looking back. You're going to trip and fall. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall out of the race. But he says, I'm reaching forward. In other words, stretching forward. Chasing the finish line for the ultimate prize in verse 14. I press toward the goal to run swiftly to catch something. Uh, King James Version says the mark. I press toward the mark. The aim. What are you, what are you aiming for in life? In your Christian walk? I know you're going to have your aspirations and your plans and the Lord will honor those when you put Him first, when you seek Him first. He may change a few things and rearrange a few things in our desires. But when you seek Him first, but what are you looking for? And Paul says it here, he concludes, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Mountain climbing is an illustration of the upward call. As you approach the summit, the mountain lures you through all the twists and turns. And just when you think you've arrived, just when your body's used to that particular grade of climbing, you look around the corner and there's another twist and turn and maybe you're higher. You haven't reached the summit yet. But you've gone this far. You're like, I am going to keep going. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm talking from experience, having been stationed in Alaska when I was a young man. It's a young man's game. <laughs> Climbing those mountains. It was amazing. But you get up there, and if it's in the wintertime, it's especially a little bit challenging. And look, I'm nobody special. We all, you know, we all had our gear. We all had our REI accounts we ordered from the, you know, the place. And we lived in the barracks at the time. And we'd get out there and, and climb up Barometer Mountain. Some of you that have been to Kodiak, you know what I'm talking about. But when you're up there and you're, you're, you're coming over to the top and you think, it's going to be there, it's right there, and it's not there. You got to go some more. Now your body's going to get used to that particular climb and that particular angle. And this cycle repeats itself until you finally reach the top. Edward Bach tells a story of a Native American Indian chief. And he wrote this. He says, The old man was accustomed to test the mettle of his young braves by making them run in a single effort as far up the side of a mountain as each could reach in one sustained attempt. On the appointed day, four of them left at daybreak. The first returned with a branch of spruce, indicating the height to which he had attained. The second bore a twig of pine, and the third brought an alpine shrub. But it was by the light of the moon that the fourth made his way back, and then he came, worn and exhausted, and his feet were torn by the rocks. What did you bring, and how high did you ascend? The chief asked him. Sire, he replied, where I went there was neither spruce nor pine to shelter me from the sun, nor flower to cheer my path, but only rocks and snow and barren land. My feet are torn. I am exhausted and I have come late. But and a wonderful light came into this young brave's eyes as he added, I saw the sea. You see, when you get to the top of a mountain, and especially I'll describe Kodiak and my experiences, they're they're tall mountains, but they're steep mountains, but they're not very high above the elevation. They go about 2,500 feet, but they're steep. It's like climbing the tip of a big mountain, right? But when you get to the top, you can see the whole island. You can, see the, you can just see everywhere. It's just amazing on a clear day. 
Sometimes you actually go through the clouds above the layer or the cloud layer and you can see it. And the view of immensity, it's the vision of the infinite. This is what we're talking about in, in our own spiritual sense, the upward call. As you press into the Lord, as you continue to climb and you continue to reach, you get to the glory of the summit. And this is the prize of the upward call. And this is what Paul had done and this is what he's calling all of us to do. Because when you get there, when you continue to travel and you continue to hear God's call and you put aside the things of this world and you seek after him, you're never going to be the same again. I can guarantee it. You'll never be the same again. You guys know what I'm talking about. And near the end of his life, Paul said this to his young Timothy. He said, for I am already being poured out. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love the Lord's appearing? Do you want to know him and not just know, simply know about him? Some final thoughts as we conclude, and I mean it this time. I was reminded this week, you guys remember last week, some of you knew that uh, Pastor John and I were headed up to Philadelphia for a pastor's conference. And uh, there was a time during the conference when um, Pastor Joe Foch, Calvary Chapel of Philadelphia, he has, he has them stand. Now, you've got 1,400 men in this place. Right? It's a big sanctuary. And he always has people stand and so that we can pray for your prodigals. And those, you know, you'd be amazed. Every, every year, several people stand up. And they receive prayer in, all, in the different areas at this conference. You know, we pray for those prodigal kids. Those ones who are no longer walking with the Lord or have gone far, far away from Him. Well, this year he said, I'm going to do something a little different. He says, after we prayed for the prodigals once again in the room, he said, I want to see all of you who were once prodigals stand up. And <laughs> it was amazing. Um, and he said, I want you to come up on the platform and I want you to say one, one thing into the platform. And he said, don't stop praying. And so this was a men's conference. So young men, older men, one after another, after another. There were a couple dozen of them, right, Pastor John? And they just said, don't stop praying. Each person came and don't stop praying. And so I, I just want to emphasize that's part of the upward call as we continue to pray for one another. We're also to take stock. We're, we're to take inventory. We need to keep a spiritual balance, if you will. And we need to keep it simple. You know, just simply follow hard after Jesus. Develop a growing relationship with Christ. And again, not only don't stop praying, but don't give up. If you've been seized by Jesus, if he has a hold of you, then put the past behind you and forget. Move forward. Because we're, we're wanting to hear the same words. Matthew 25, 23, when his Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Amen? Amen. <coughs> Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. 
and renew a right spirit within me. Lord, we thank you for our time today. And we ask, Father, that you would simply go before what we're about to do. Lord, we thank you for the meal that we're about to enjoy. I would like to pray for the meal as we get ready to rearrange the room and have some fellowship. But Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for those who are outside preparing the, the meal for us, the, Walter and the guys that were uh, braving the elements during the service, that we might enjoy a nice fellowship meal together. And so, Lord, once again, would you just simply encourage our hearts to continue our quest by the power of the Holy Spirit, the upward call to know you, to know you in our suffering, to know you in your suffering, in the power of your resurrection. We thank you, Lord, for your word today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Calvary Chapel Elizabeth City's online sermon series. Join us next week as we continue through the Bible, book by book, verse by verse, line by line. God bless.